Good to be together tonight on a Sunday night to study this wonderful vision that we're in the middle of studying, book of Revelation. Take your Bibles, let's turn there. <clears throat> what a great opportunity for us to expose our minds and our hearts to the truth of Scripture. The Christian life really is a simple formula. The more you gaze intently into the truth about God, the more you see things rightly. You see God rightly, and having seen God rightly, you see yourself rightly. And conversely, the, the more you are taken away from the Word of God and its truths, the more you're distracted from it or you walk away from it, the less you're going to see God rightly, the less you're going to see yourself rightly. In the study of counterfeit currency, the experts do not study the counterfeits, they study the real authentic currency so that when something comes across their eyes that is not matching that which is authentic, they see it. They can see its flaws. I used to work in an environment in the military, we'd go in and out of this dark room looking at radar scopes and... It had to be really dark in there, but when you were out on break and you were in the light of the room and then you went in for your shift, it was exceedingly dark having been in the light. It's a great illustration that the more you look at truth, the more you see Christ, the more you see God for who He is, the more your sin shows up in all of its darkest hues the way it's supposed to. The problem the church has had is that it has needed a vision of Christ and it hasn't had a whole lot of clarity brought to it uh, in the evangelical world because we've gotten away from truth, drifted from it, walked away from it, distracted away from it. When you see Christ rightly, the reaction is always to see your sin clearly. In Luke 5.8, when Peter had fished and not caught anything. And Jesus, you remember in that study, says, put your nets down, and they, they couldn't haul in the load. Peter was suddenly aware that, that Jesus Christ was with him. He is the Messiah. He controls the fish by the word of his power. And so what did Peter say in Luke 5.8? Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I mocked you in my mind, I disregarded what you said, I didn't believe you, and when I saw you in all of your power, I was immediately aware with clarity of the blackness of my own heart. When God called Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 and following, he sees a vision of God on his throne, and he sees the glory filling the temple, and he has in this great vision this wondrous amazing sight of the holiness of God and the angels around the throne singing or saying with one another, holy, holy, holy. And he, he gets in that great vision this now clear understanding of his own self before the throne. And he says, woe is me. I am undone. I am disintegrating. I am coming apart at the seams. Depart from me, O God. I am a man of unclean words and lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. I see myself rightly because I see you clearly. It's always the reaction. 
Why is Jesus giving his people a vision of the risen, glorious splendor of his person and his character? Because he is about to say to the churches some very important things about what the church needs to hear about itself. And you could go blithely along. Some of the churches uh, just on cruise control, others deliberately ignoring certain things, others living in the selfishness of their own sense of, hey, we're doing ministry for God, we're, we're burning it up. Others, neither hot nor cold. Others, great reputation in name, but the heart of the ministry is dead and Jesus knows it. How are they going to receive instruction? Well, it's just the wisdom of God to open up this vision with a right understanding of who he is and a servant like John to write it down. And you remember in this vision as it unfolds, before we get to the end of this chapter, you see how the Lord himself greets his people. You see that God is praised for his work of redemption in verses 5 and 6 and our wonderful privileged place in it. You see the very promises given from the Godhead that our Savior is going to be returning and it will be physical and it will be real and it will be to the earth and it will be a kingdom set up and the whole world will be shocked. These things, by the way, will be reiterated in theme in the end when you get to the victorious chapters. And then he calls, verse 9, the king's servant to call, uh, to write things down. What does he begin with he says, I want you to write down what you see and write it in a scroll because you're going to give it to the churches. The first thing we noticed that he saw was the king's presence with his people. And we saw that in verses 12 and 13. He's in the middle of his churches. He's in the middle of the lampstands. He's in the middle of us, the midst of us. He sees us. He's walking in and around us. He knows by his spirit what goes on with us. He knows whether our church has a name that it's alive but it's truly dead. He knows whether we're hot nor cold. He knows whether we're tolerating error. He knows whether there's secret sins going on. He knows whether there's false teachers sitting here waiting for the right opportunity as savage wolves to pounce. He knows. And John sees one like a son of man. That is, that he's in our midst, not just as God, but as one of us. He loves his people. He's intimate with his people. He's the son of man. He's part of us now. What a great thing to say. It's paralleling Daniel's prophetic vision from the seventh chapter of that prophecy. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, I, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. The son of man coming from heaven in the clouds. The God-man in full condescension to come down to his people and love us as we need to be loved. And he comes as the mediator, the priest. And so John sees him in his priestly garments. He sees him as one who is wearing the golden sash and girded across his chest. A, cloth, a cloth robe reaching to the feet. And we saw not only the king's presence revealed among his people, but the king's purity and his sovereignty revealed. You remember his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. This speaks of his holy nature. And then his eyes piercingly look through the church with all the clarity that he needs to know exactly what's going on down to the thoughts and intentions. His eyes burn. 
they're a fire. They see, they judge, they're just, they convict, they go down to the thoughts and intentions, they determine, they finalize, they declare. Nothing gets beyond his gaze. And if you thought that he might be unjust when he sees what he sees, if you thought his punishment might not fit what we need, if you thought his chastisement was going to go too far for the churches, his feet are like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. This is the righteous justice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every decision he makes about his church, every moment of chastening that he brings, every circumstance of trial that he brings to refine us, it is tailor-made, perfect. And he has a right to do it. John's, John hears the voice like the sound of many waters. This is his ultimate authority. It's the supreme voice in the church, Jesus Christ. And so he holds the, the messengers to the church and, and the people of God, therefore, in his right hand. That's the symbol of authority, the symbol of power, the symbol of his legitimate personal right to do with us as he must. You say, why all this in the vision? Because this brings great comfort. It is helpful, it is amazing that he's that near, that he's that involved, that he's that personal, that he knows us by name, he knows every thought, every struggle, every battle, and he is working in our midst always to meet our needs. Ever thought about the fact that when you think about God being overall and having authority, and as we've been learning in Luke, his sovereignty, have you ever thought about the fact that all of us pray all the time, some of us a little, some of us a lot, and we all pray different things based upon whatever's on our hearts, whatever thoughts come into our head, whatever burdens facing our life, whatever prayer list we have in front of us, whatever other people's needs come to our doorstep, we pray, all of us pray. And we pray night and day. We pray from sunup to sundown. The only time we don't pray is when we're asleep. And all of those prayers, all different at all times about how many different things, they all go to God at the same time. They all go to God when they're delivered to God. They all go to God when they're spoken and expressed before God. And we're just one tiny flock of his people on the face of the earth. All around the globe, on the face of the planet, are millions of other believers. And he hears all their prayers when they're delivered. He receives them all. He is able to process them all. And he uses all that information, which he already knew anyway, and he takes it and he comes into the midst of his people in all the assemblies all across the globe at all times of day and night. And he ministers in this tailor-made way to his people. There isn't a need that you have or a burden you've expressed that he doesn't already know about it wants you to express it, receives it with joy, and comes into your life with ministry to help and uplift and reprove and correct and chasten and build up. What a comforting vision for what's about to be 
spoken and revealed in the rest of this work. Frightening times, terrifying times, blood running cold kind of times. What a comfort to know that our Lord is right in our midst with authority and justice and righteousness and knowledge and holiness and He's willing to mediate and He condescends humbly to meet our needs and He's in our midst with full care. The brief last part of this, we waited till tonight because we want to see what John ultimately responds to. Verse 16, you remember his right, in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That is the authority and power and voice of Christ in his church. His word matters. His word is all that matters. His word is clarity. His word is knowledge. His word goes down where we need it. It is truth. It is immovable. And John in his vision sees the face of the Lord of glory himself in this vision. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. In this vision of the risen king, he sees the face of Jesus Christ. And the text literally says it was as the sun appearing in its strength. Or your ESV probably indicates the, the full sense of this. In the fullness of its strength or in its full strength. Like the sun at midday as the Holman Christian Standard Version says. The description in context seems to fit the idea that sun, the sun when it's at high noon... So the best translation is that when John saw the face of the risen Lord, it was so bright, it was like trying to look at the sun. You remember I told you about Joshua ben Hananiah, the rabbi, second century rabbi, and he was talking to the emperor, and the emperor said, show me God. I mean, if he exists, show him to me. And the rabbi said, that's impossible. I can't do that. And he said, well, then I, I won't believe in him if you don't show him to me. And so the rabbi said, come outside then and stare at the sun. And the emperor said, that's impossible. And he said, well, that's a created thing. If you can't stare at the created thing, you're not going to be able to look into the face of the Creator who made it. So true. How can you behold glory in all of its fullness if you can't even look at the sun? What is being described here is just the glory of the sun, the radiant glory of Christ. You remember back in our study of Luke 9, they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and while Jesus was praying, his appearance changed. Everything changed. His face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. His face shone like the sun, Matthew's gospel records. Same language. The Old Testament describes God as light, Psalm 104 verse 2 says that he wears light. Light is his garment. Exodus 13 verse 2 and following says that light dwells with him. So he is light. Light dwells with him. He wears light. Light is his garment. It is the brightness of his countenance or his character or his person which is described as light. Habakkuk 3 verse 4. 
And Psalm 4, verse 6, who will show us any good? So now we've got moral aspects thrown into the mix. Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your face upon us. Yahweh, lift up the light of your face. The countenance of Yahweh is light. Psalm 44, verse 3, by their own sword, they didn't possess the land, but your right hand, your arm, and the light of your presence saved them. It is the presence of God that is always depicted as light. O Yahweh, they walk in the light of your countenance, Psalm 89, verse 15. The Old Testament always presented the the person of God, the character of God as representing light that, that is so radiant, so brilliant, so blazing, it is impossible to approach. It is the manifest presence of God and even the glorified Christ in his resurrected state uh, when he was already ascended to heaven. He met Paul on the road to Damascus and was in his full glorified state at the right hand of the Father and the appearance of the glorified Christ to the Apostle Paul gave him the credentials to be an apostle. And Acts 9.3 says that that the light was so bright it knocked all of those who were with Paul to the ground with him. It is a brightness so overwhelming that no one and no thing can come near it without a negative consequence with eternal implications. And 1 Timothy 6.16 uses this descriptor that God dwells or His dwelling place is described as unapproachable light. Unapproachable. It cannot be seen. No man has seen or can see it, the text says. In other words, mortals cannot survive direct exposure to the presence of God because His glory cannot be approached, it cannot be accessed, it cannot be looked at without experiencing the consequences of being a mere mortal who's staring into the presence of God, God who is holy, God who is light, God who is unapproachable, inaccessible. And you might say, what makes Him so unapproachable? Well, you know that... the Bible says it is, it is the, it uses words like splendor and, and glory and majesty. It is, it is the sum of his person, his character, his perfections. And when he showed Moses the fringes of it, you remember in Exodus, it was the glowing light of his glory. And when he showed him the fringes of it, really the afterglow of it as he passed by and held Moses under the shadow of a rock, he says, I'm going to make my character, my goodness, my perfections, my person, pass before you. Moses couldn't look directly at it. In fact, after he'd been with God and God had been revealing himself on Mount Sinai, he came down and, and uh, God had made Moses' face to retain the glow of the glory and he had to put a veil over it because even the afterglow which God made Moses' face to reflect was so bright that he had to put a veil over it because the people of God saw him coming down from the mountain and it was blinding all of them. He didn't even look directly into the face of God. He looked into a bush and when later he said, show me your glory, he was put under the cleft of a rock and yet God had allowed the reflection of his glory to stay upon his face and even that had to be veiled for God's people could not look upon the brightness of it. Strange, isn't it? 
So when Christ came to earth, when the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, it says in John 1.14 that men beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, they beheld His glory, but they held it, they beheld it, they looked at it behind a veil of His flesh, His humanity. And that humanity kept the rest of us, the rest of those who were around Him in His earthly ministry from being destroyed immediately. The veil of His flesh kept humanity, fallen humanity, from being exposed to the glory of Christ as the God-man. Colossians 2.9 says the fullness of deity was there. Absolutely. In bodily form, the fullness of Christ's deity was there. But in the full light of His purity, He could not manifest it because He's so righteous, it had to be veiled until humans are fashioned for glory and then can look into it. We have too much... We have, un, we have remaining sin. We have unredeemed humanity that's still a part of our lives. And until it's swallowed up with a body fashioned for glory and no more sin remains and we, we have a body of immortality, until then, until that time when we can finally look into the glorious face of our Savior and live, it's veiled. It was veiled to us. One day though, we are going to have a body fashioned for glory and, and we're going to see Christ and look directly into it with eyes wide open and we're going to survive because we're going to be as holy as He. We're going to be reflections of His holiness and His purity and His righteousness and the scriptures say we're going to look directly into His glory and that glory is going to explode in reflective righteousness through our entire person. You say, is that in Scripture? Yes, it is. Ephesians 3.19. Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. There it is. Our ultimate glory when this body goes away and we're translated into our new body which he raises up in his power, our resurrected bodies, when we have those, we're going to be filled up to the fullness of God. Not we're going to be God, we're going to reflect His righteousness fully with no more sin. Unreal. And then Jesus Christ is going to take all of His people who are filled up to the fullness of Him and 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says when all of that has been subjected to Christ, He's going to take all of His redeemed people and hand them back to the Father so that the Father may be all in all. We're going to explode with the reflective righteousness of the Godhead and look directly into it without fear. So now you can see that during Jesus' earthly ministry, people beheld His glory, but, but it was veiled behind His humanity. And how did they behold His glory? Well, they, behold, they beheld the glory of God in that they heard the truth of God perfectly spoken, every word Jesus ever uttered. It was truth. It was truth from God. And they heard it with their ears. In that sense, they beheld His glory They beheld his glory in the sense that they observed his righteous character. And it was the character of God perfectly lived out. They beheld the glory of a righteous human being. Adam was innocent in untested holiness before the fall. After the fall, there hasn't been a righteous human being until Jesus Christ. 
remarkable to see a righteous human being who never sins and who was affirmed by the Father as having never sinned on the inside either. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He never sinned on the inside either. Remarkable. They saw that. And they beheld His glory in that they witnessed the power of God, which, by the way, was invincible. Winds and waves He brought into submission by the word of His mouth. Demons bowed down and fled at His very comments. He stopped funerals in their tracks and raised the dead. He healed instantly diseases and restored maimed limbs. They saw the glory of His power. And they they beheld the glory and the grace and the truth of his every sermon and his every saying and they noted how his teachings were beyond mortals just beyond just to hear him teach was to listen to authority that was beyond mortals his arguments beyond anything they'd ever heard his logic his wisdom his insight his depth just beyond even the best theologians of the day They saw his glory in that way. And listen, they never stared directly into the full blazing glory of Jesus Christ. And in the experience of John in this vision, he only can describe looking into the face of the risen Christ this way. In in a sense, he himself is also veiled because all he can say is, it's like looking at the sun. I can't look. I have to turn away. I'm forced. I want to look at the matchless splendor of Christ. I want to look at the full glory of His risen life. But John said it's like staring at the sun in its full strength. This speaks of Christ's majesty in His church, His perfections for His people, His deity for the power of His people, His holiness and righteousness for His people, and His eternality. He is God, a very God, moving in the midst of His people. We have no concerns or worries other than sin we haven't confessed. He's light. The prophet had said it in Isaiah 16, 19, the Lord Yahweh will be your everlasting light. That is accomplished in King Jesus. And the theme of the light and the glory of God comes to the forefront in the triumphant passages at the end of John's vision. Just take a sneak peek at at chapter 21, verse 10. Verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 10, and then we'll move down to the end of it. But this is a description of the holy city. John says, the Spirit carried me away, or the seven, one of the seven angels carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And then he describes the city in all of its measurements and all of its beauty. But you notice down in verse 22, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And this new Jerusalem, this new city, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb 
and the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there'll be no night there, its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And of course, nothing unclean will be a part of it. Look at Revelation 22, verse 3 and 5, 3 to 5. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. Look at that. We shall see his face. And his name will be on us, on our foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night. They shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. John sees in this vision the splendor of unapproachable light and he wants us to know that this is the, redeem, this is the Redeemer, the risen King of Kings and when you look at his face, it is so bright. We will need a glorified body. We must have glorified eyes to see it. All we have right now is, is a, a glimpse. <laughs> a glimpse. Why, why get a glimpse of His glory, of His radiance? Because when judgments come, you're going to want to know two things, that He is God and He is overcome. That's what you're going to want to know, that He is God and He is overcome. You're going to want to know what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. He is the radiance of His glory. The Son is the radiance of the Father's glory and He's the exact representation of His nature. He is the essence, one in essence with the Father and He radiates the glory of the Father. You want that Savior in the midst of His people when the tribulation comes. You want that Savior when evil is at its zenith, running its course and expecting to overcome God's people and destroy them. You want to know that He is God and He has overcome. Nothing will overpower Him. By the time we immerse ourselves in this vision, when He has instructed the church and then moves toward these statements on judgment, it is absolutely the most chaotic, the the noisiest, the, the most frightening set of judgments that come down and rain down upon the people of the earth. It is relentless. It is loud with a few moments of silence and a whole lot of commands fired off from heaven. And it is terrifying. God's people need to know that no matter the season of of God's redemptive history therein, He is God and He is overcome. Our risen King is in the midst of His people. He gives John this vision to demonstrate that He's pure and He's sovereign and He's watching and He's loving and caring and He's tender and He is interested and He's proactive and He's protective He's reproving, teaching, shepherding. And He's even condescending because He's one of us, one like a son of man in our midst to lead us by our side. 
And everything is in his right hand. And as we saw from our study of Luke this morning, all things have been given to him. That's why we need this vision. John writes it down, or he's written it down later. The text doesn't say, but in verse 17 says, when I saw him. The temporal clause is there in the text. When I saw him, it may indicate that when he saw the radiance of his face, it may indicate that he saw the vision, hadn't even written a word yet, and was struggling. But notice what happens. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. (laughs) I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand upon me saying, do not be afraid. By the way, this, as you know, as I've said over and over again, parallels the 7th and 10th chapter of Daniel. And Daniel, Daniel's reaction to his visions, as I said earlier, is similar, parallel. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 8, at one point Daniel was left alone with the vision because everyone else got terrified and left. Those against whom the vision came, those upon whom judgment was going to fall in Daniel's vision, those who understood the implications because God had put it upon them in conviction to understand it, they all left. And Daniel, it says, was left alone and he saw this great vision. And then he describes in chapter 10, verse 8, what happened to him physically. No strength was left in myself or my body for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor. We would say, Bro, you look like you've seen a ghost. We would say, you're ashen. The blood has rushed from your head. And I retain no strength, he said. As soon as I heard the sound of his words, Daniel says, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. That's what's happening here to John. Same vision, paralleling Daniel the prophet. John knows it. And he he became weak. He fell at the Lord's feet in the vision like a dead man. This is nothing short of the blood running out of your head. His strength immediately drains. And his mind and all of his senses were completely shaken and overwhelmed. exactly what it's like when Ezekiel saw the glory of Yahweh he fell on his face and by the way in Ezekiel's prophecy it happened six different times he says it over and over again I saw the Lord and I fell on my face I saw his glory and I fell on my face it could indicate passing out Merely, it could indicate the loss of physical strength and all your senses on high alert as to the terrifying moment. It could also indicate being overcome with acute fear. It could also indicate worship. I have nothing that I can do except plead mercy and fall in the presence of God for that mercy in an act of worship, hoping to be preserved. And maybe the instincts are piled together and it's all of those things it's fear, it's terror, it's physical sensations, it's overwhelmed emotions and it's a desperate cry for mercy and an attempt to worship maybe that's what it is same thing happened to Peter, James and John on the mountaintop Matthew 17, 6, they fell to the ground on their faces 
in his commentary on Revelation, Grant Osborne called this the natural reaction in the face of an epiphany. Yes, when you had been given a vision of God, this was the natural reaction. It is natural, he said, for finite beings to fall to the ground in fear. That's right. Cover your heads, fall to the ground, find a place to hide, get out of it. And we note that John has the same reaction when he sees angels. Chapter 19, verse 10, and chapter 22, verse 8. He has the same reaction in the presence of divine beings, but they're angelic, they're not God. Still, you realize you're mortal, you're finite. This is why, by the way, the demons, in whatever work they're doing, they do not readily manifest themselves unless it's a culture steeped in the kinds of things that allow for whatever particular kind of demon that is that, that wreaks havoc at that level. But for, for cultures that, that you don't see that in all the time, it's because in those cultures, Satan does his greatest work when nobody is naturally terrified. He does his greatest work when you're casual about your Pathway to hell, he does his greatest work when whole entire cultures are deceived about false worship and worshiping rocks and trees and themselves. He loves to deceive. He's not going to come manifest himself in some frightening experience of demonic manifestation. Demons do their best work when they are lying and deceiving and you don't know and you're blinded. When a mortal is in the presence of a supernatural being, it is quite natural to fall on your face in fear and or an attempt to worship. But notice the tender comfort brought to John by the Lord, the king's comfort brought to him. He laid his right hand upon me. Interesting, he mentions the right hand. He just mentioned it. This is strength and authority. This is security and sustaining power. I love that. There's an intimate way in which the Lord comes alongside John and he says, I will strengthen you. I am your security. I'm your sustaining power. So do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. The angels had to say it to the disciples and to the women when Jesus rose from the dead because here you were in the presence of holy angels and in the brightness of their presence they were speaking the message that Jesus had risen from the, risen from the dead and they were all afraid instantly. They knew they were in the presence of supernatural beings and their first thing was tender. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. In other words, you're all right. You're okay. You're one of God's people. He's going, to, he's going to take care of your life in this moment. He's going to provide security, sustaining power and strength. This is why you have in the written revelation of God so many times when the Lord says, don't let your heart be troubled. Do not fear. I've overcome the world. In the world you have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. Satan has no, nothing in me. He has no power over you. I am giving you the victory. My peace I give to you. Don't let your heart be burdened. Don't lose heart. Trust me. Don't be afraid. It's all over the scriptures. That is the tender comfort of the Lord brought to his people in the same way he brings it to John here. 
When you come to the Scriptures and you read it and you see the light of Christ and it shows you the blackness of your heart, what do you do? You get afraid. You start to doubt. Do I even belong to you? Lord, it's the same sin over and over again. Lord, I feel guilty. Lord, what a mess I am. I can't even serve you faithfully. Oh God, I see my sin anew because I've read that passage over and over again and it's just never hit me because I've casually and cursorily went over it. But today, it's so piercingly clear. The light is so bright. I see my heart so true. And the darkness is just beyond my ability to take. And the Lord reaches down with the scriptures and grabs you and says, Do not fear. I'm your Lord. I'm your master. I'll give you security. I can take care of you. Nothing can separate you from my love. Not death. Not height. Not depth. Not peril. Not sword, not persecution, not destitution. In all this, we overwhelmingly conquer. This is great comfort. Don't be afraid. The risen King of Kings knows what he's revealing. He knows how terrifying it would be if you had no covering. He knows that the naturalness of your heart goes to doubt. He knows that you tremble. He knows, like John here, that you would do the same thing, fall over like a dead man. And he brings intimate fellowship, grabs him by his right hand, the hand of strength in which is salvation. And so there is forgiven sin in that gesture. That gesture represents intimate fellowship. It's my right hand touching you, John. You come. I am saving you. I am taking care of you. I have secured your salvation. And in that right hand is forgiven sin. God would never, by the strong arm of His saving hand, reach down and comfort us with that strong arm were it not for our sin and iniquity being covered. What a tender expression to John, hey, I've forgiven you. And there's even in that right-hand gesture affirmed service, the affirmation of his usefulness. Do not be afraid. He is grabbing him with his right hand. He is going to lift him up for service. And he'll say it later. Verse 19, therefore write the things which you've seen. He said it before. Verse 11, write it in a book what you see and send it to the churches. And John has seen a vision of Christ. You can imagine him at this point putting the pen down and saying, you want me to write? I cannot. I have no worthiness. I cannot be used of you. I I have no holiness in me and I've seen a clear vision of you and just like Isaiah, I'm undone. Pen down, scroll set aside. Lord, you cannot use me. And the Lord in that tender moment shows intimate fellowship, the covering of righteousness, forgiven sin and affirmed service. That's comfort. Don't be afraid. I'll make you useful. I'll make you useful. It reminds me of 2 Timothy 2. The Lord knows those who are His. Right? He set His seal to this. The Lord knows who are, those who are His and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. John's not a perfect man. 
He doesn't have his glorified body yet, but he's a servant of the Lord. In fact, he's exiled to the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The Lord knows John. He knows those who are his. He knows it. This is an affirmation of service and usefulness. And in this moment of comfort, Jesus then interjects his final message before he sends John with the vision to the churches. And he he wants to bring up one final subject, and that is the risen king's triumph. The risen king's triumph over the enemy, the ultimate enemy. No matter if someone comes to lop your head off, no matter if the church is persecuted to the point of spilling blood all over the valley of Megiddo, no matter the tribulation period that is to come, no matter what the church endures, no matter how many people are killed of whom the world is not worthy, no matter how many ways God's people are put upon and the Antichrist in his rise, the spirit of him and finally the arrival of him in the tribulation, no matter how much of that comes... Death cannot overtake a believer who's in Christ. And so that's what he finishes with. And first he says, I'm eternal. So not only do I own it all, not only am I in my power and authority, God, but that means I am eternal. Notice he says, I'm the first and the last, John. This is the one perfection, by the way, in the old prophetic literature, this is the one perfection that God exalts over all false gods, that he can tell the end from the beginning, that he's ordained all things, that he was there before time began, he's the one who created time, he's the one who will let it run its course, he's the one who will move out into eternity with his people. It is God who has said one thing that it will come to pass and when it comes to pass it is God who elevates that perfection and says I know the end from the beginning. I ordain it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I'm eternal. I am the first and the last. I am before everything arrived. I'm the creator and I will be here on into eternity when all is said and done. Nothing came before me and nothing will outlast me. I remember many years ago in my era, a particular really famous music group that declared that they'll be around a lot longer than Jesus. That they will outlive God himself. The Beatles Nonsense. They're not the first and the last. They're so typical of human heart. Herod giving a great speech in the book of Acts. People started saying, oh, he's such an orator that he's like a god. And the Lord struck him dead right there. He's like so many. God lifts up, God takes down But bring forth, Isaiah said, bring forth your gods. Let them say what's going to happen and then see it brought to pass. No, that is the one difference between our God and all of man's false gods. God says it's going to happen and it does happen. 
to the detail exactly as he says it. Why? Because he's able to predict those things? He's some sort of guru that can predict them? No. He orders them. He ordains them. What he says happens. That's the big difference. That's what makes him true and living God and every other God dead. That's it. And that's what Jesus says here. I am eternal. I'm the first and the last. And notice he says, and the living one. What does that mean? Life is in me. Because I'm eternal, I have a life. In him was life, John 1, 4. And the life was the light of men. In John 6, 63, when they came to him and said, we don't like what you're saying. You're saying come to you. You're saying you're the bread from heaven. You're saying eat you and we won't hunger. You're saying drink you and we won't thirst. You're saying that you and your sacrifice is what we need. Are you kidding? We have the law. We have our righteous ways and our works of the law. That's where the Spirit lives. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. My words are spirit and life. You want to live? Come to my words. Eat my words. Obey my words. Listen to my words. Humble yourself under my words. Listen to my voice. Whatever I say, own it. Whatever I command, yield to it. Whatever I proclaim, believe it. Entrust yourself to it. My words are life to you. In Him is life. Man, I need to know that. I need to know that. Death continues. Death meets us all. Death comes to our doorstep. Death is, is talked about at every funeral we attend. Death is this great enemy and no human being escapes it. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Christ or out of Christ. It's, it's all right there in front of us all the time. And the world dreads it and can't explain it. And nothing goes beyond that barrier. And they even try to come up with guys and gurus and talk shows to say they're talking to the dead. And all they're doing is talking to demons. Why do we do that? Because we're hoping that there's some way to see beyond the barrier. Why? Because nobody escapes it. I need to know that, that when persecution comes and the church is being purified by his Savior and we're being reproved so that we can clean up our act and be more faithful to the Lord and not apostatize and useful to him in the gospel and then a light that brings trouble and then persecution comes and maybe some bloodletting or imprisonment or whatever it may mean. I need to know that no matter how many heads are lopped off, how many times I have to pledge my own family to heaven for the gospel or my own neck for the sake of Christ, that death is conquered. I need to know that. I need to know that in my life and in our midst in the church is a Savior who is the first and the last, the living one in whom is life. And when they didn't like what Jesus was saying, he tried to explain it to them, and they all left, and they didn't like it. And, and I love it that Jesus just wants to hear his people reiterated. And so he turns right to the disciples, and he says, are you walking away as well? Peter says, Lord, where will we go? You alone have the words of life. You alone have the words of eternal life. That's what John needs to see. That's what we need. 
And notice Jesus says, and I was dead. Or literally the verb, I, I became dead. I was put to death. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I love it. Behold, look at this. This is speaking of his humanity and his sacrifice on our behalf. 1 Peter 3.18, here's the clarity of it. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. God didn't die. God cannot die. But the God-man who put on humanity, he put on flesh, and that flesh could die and did die. And as he died, the Father took all of our guilt and put it to his account and crushed him in death and forsook him and made him alone and cursed him and made him taste the curse and feel the curse and the sting of guilt that he never had earned. The Father made him do that so that he was put to death in the flesh and then he was resurrected and made alive in the spirit. And so he says, check this out. That's the vernacular of behold. You do. Look at this. I'm alive forevermore. You want Jesus in the midst of your church. You want Jesus in the midst intimately with your people because He is the living one. In Him is life. He's the first and the last, the eternal one. His words are spirit and life. He was dead and behold, He is resurrected to be alive forevermore. Romans 6 verse 9, He cannot be put to death ever again. He can die no longer. He conquered it. You know, which tells you there was no way to conquer death unless you were a righteous sacrifice. And once death is conquered by someone who is righteous, it never has to happen again to that person. And anyone who comes to him for that life conquers death. And so that's why Paul said to the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. His Eternal life, the first and the last, the living one, is coursing through my life by faith. And though this body will die, I will pass through that barrier and it'll be nothing. It'll be like that. Nothing. And I'll be in the presence of Christ and you'll be in the presence of Christ, a Savior who conquered death, and you will not face a judge. You will go through that barrier and you will know the reality of the first and the last eternal one, the one who is the living one who has imparted life to you. You will know the spirit and life of his words. You will know that he is alive forevermore and in him you are alive forevermore. And so it is no wonder that he then says, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Hades is just that expression in the scriptures for the place of the dead, the people who pass through that barrier and await judgment. I have the keys of that place. I have the keys to the place where when it's finally unlocked and everybody is brought out, they will face their maker. I have the keys to that. And that means he has authority over those souls as we saw this morning and he has access if he has the keys, that, mean he has, that means he has the power, he has the authority, he has the final word. And when that line is drawn and those places are opened and souls are called forth, if you're in him, 
It doesn't matter whether moments earlier you were persecuted to the point of death, whether somebody took your physical life. It doesn't matter. You know, I've often thought, I was telling my family the other day, I've often thought how ridiculous it is that, that Christians, when they get tortured, uh, the, the victory, the cheap victory that Satan wants to get is some personal verbal recanting. You know, that under torture and duress, when Christians are persecuted, that somehow all he can ever get out of anybody is what Peter did in the garden with his fear of man, etc., etc. All that's ever happened to some martyrs and reformers and people like that on some occasions of tremendous duress and horrible torture and terrible trauma, all Satan's ever been able to extract from a true believer is some verbal moment of wavering. And then if their life is taken, Satan is once again mocked for the hollow, cheap victory he's extracted out of a true believer because you cannot harm a believer who's been given life. They cannot be harmed. Their salvation cannot be taken from them. It cannot be lost. Jesus has the keys. You are in him. It is locked. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 says, He rendered powerless him who had the power of death, the devil himself. Jesus shared in our flesh and blood, partook of the same flesh and blood as, as we, so that he might die. And through that death, he rendered powerless. Satan has in death no power over those in Christ. He is powerless. Why? Because Jesus has freed those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We're no longer subject to slavery. We have no fear of death. Perfect love has cast out that fear and, and Jesus Christ is the one who has propitiated our sins and so that as we are tempted, He is able to come to our aid. We don't fear death. This is what John needed. This is what the church has needed. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. John 11. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Of course. Of course you may die. Of course you may die before the rapture, before the taking away of the church, whenever you think that might happen. Of course you may die before then. Either way, it's a short little moment, a simple little transition. And it doesn't really matter how much trauma is involved. The Lord dispenses His kindness and His grace. It doesn't matter. It's a small transition. Nothing's going to change for you except that you're going to go through that barrier and be in the presence of Christ. Death has no power. This is such a great vision for God's people. He needed it. We need it. This is the Lord of glory Himself. And that's why I love verse 19. He still says to John, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And you know the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels. That's those are the ones he's going to send as messengers. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So now the focus becomes the church. The focus becomes the Lord instructing His church. 
And you know what? He's honest. He is clear. He is authoritative. He's comforting. He's tender. He is infallible in his judgment. He is accurate in his assessments. He's convicting in his instruction to his people. He is Lord over his church and he is the the shepherd of his people and he's the priest mediating on their behalf and he's the king ruling over his subjects and he's the revelation, the prophet himself, the great prophet who comes to give us exactly what we need. Is it any wonder then that he gave this vision to John before he speaks to the churches? And through the vision As I said, you course through these letters to the churches and then four and five, you see these visions in heaven of of this glorious worship that takes place because of the purposes of God. And then chapter six through chapter 18, it is some of the most devastating future events yet to come. And John, when he sent this message to the churches, there's no way they could have handled it. There's no way we could listen to it. There's no way we could stomach it. There's no way we would be able to respond rightly to it had we not seen first the Lord, the King, the risen one in the midst of his people. You mark my words, beloved, when you read of what is to come, you will constantly refer back to chapter one, saying, Lord, thank you that you have conquered and overcome. Thank you that none of this is out of your gaze. Thank you that though evil is running its course and it is despicable and devastating and though judgments are raining down on the earth, they are coming from your hand perfect and holy and righteous. And even though your people, you're still saving all the way through the tribulation. You're still saving your people, still witnessing your people. Two witnesses for a time until they're killed and then resurrected. An angel flying in heaven giving the gospel and a host of of true believers (coughs) saved out of paganism and the bloodbath of martyrdoms that is to come. In all of that, it is ordered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to bring evil to an end. And when you read it, you constantly look back at chapter one. Thank you, Lord, for being Lord of all this process. Lord over all the evil that runs its course. Lord over the righteousness that your victory pronounces. Lord over all the demons and forces of evil, Lord over the beast, Lord over the Antichrist, Lord over the nations that come and rise up against you, and your Lord over your kingdom and Lord over your people. What a grace to give us a vision of the Lord of glory himself, the risen king full of splendor. When you look at your ministry and your life today, in light of all that's to come, whenever it is to come, you look at the ministry of, of your work right here in our assembly in this community for just such a time as this. Is this what you acknowledge and confess? And is this the reason for which you serve? And in the comfort and confidence, is this your heart and passion? as God gives you your usefulness in the kingdom work. And Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, we need this vision of Christ, don't we? For whatever's ahead. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you.
thank you, thank you so much. Our feeble minds can hardly take it in. But the clearer we see you, the more, the more we plead with you to make us useful because in and of ourselves, we have nothing. But we know you're going to make us useful for whatever's to come. And our knees tremble, strengthen them. And our hands shake, sustain them. And our minds are traumatized. Comfort our thoughts with your truth. And our faith wavers. Bolster it with your Spirit's power. And may we minister to one another and then scatter to a community and to spheres of influence, whatever they may be, here and across the world. And may we not waver. We would fall to the ground and often do in prayer and tears saying, Lord, how could we ever be useful to you, our Lord of glory? And then we know your word as it picks us up with the strong right hand of your salvation. And you say, don't be afraid. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You've overcome the world, Lord. And so this is our victory in you. And if you've given us your peace, then may we serve in that peace, we pray, for your glory's sake. Amen.